This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, chapter 9, looking this evening at verses 1 through 14. Hear the Word of God, Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We give thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and teach us as we study your word tonight. This late hour of the day, give us sharp minds, Lord, to think your thoughts after you in the contemplation of this passage. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We return to our study of Hebrews and remind you simply of uh, the theme of Hebrews, at least the early chapters through the middle of the book. Uh, that has to do with the superiority of what we have now in Christ Jesus. A few weeks ago, we looked at chapter 8, uh, and actually chapter 7 kind of ties in with it too, that uh, Jesus is a better high priest than the old priestly system, and he serves under a better covenant. Well, as we move into chapter 9, we see uh, the same theme taking place, but in a, in a different sense. Uh, you almost have something of a travelogue, a tour guide of the old tabernacle, and then the arrangements that we have now under the new covenant, and again, the superiority 
uh, of those things. This written to people who were wrestling with whether what they had in Christ actually was superior. Uh, the old system could be impressive. It certainly could be graphic at times. Uh, that coupled with persecution for being believers was uh, providing sore temptation to return. And the writer keeps hammering home his point. No, no, no. What you have now in Christ far surpasses what you had under the old covenant. Again, this is something of a contrast, looking at characteristics of the old covenant, characteristics of the new. Uh, first of all, the old covenant, he really deals with that in the first ten verses. You'll notice the ESV has a section break there. You think, well, we should end with verse 10, and that you could end there, but verse 11 ends with, but when Christ appeared. That's the contrast. It's the flip side. So we're going to look at those verses together with verses 1 through 10 because he's forming a comparison, contrast, actually. Well, as you look at the characteristics of the Old Covenant in verses 1 through 10, first thing he wants to show us is the old sanctuary the old place of worship that they had in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, Uh, especially if if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, the latter part of it, which we haven't gotten to in our uh, series in Exodus and won't get to, at least in this uh, iteration of it. We're planning to end in chapter 20. Uh, the, The latter part of Exodus is concerned in great detail with the construction of the tabernacle. Uh, God-given blueprint, uh, God-given design for this worship center, this place of meeting with the Lord that Israel was to have. And he goes into detail here in describing it, uh, reminding them of what was in it, various articles. And we'll look at that briefly when it will spend all our time looking at the details of the tabernacle, but uh, he does mention them. So the old sanctuary under the old covenant, verses 2 through 5. He says, even the first covenant had regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness. And then he mentions the tabernacle here. For a tent uh, was prepared. The first section, uh, in other words, the holy place, the, uh, the the outer room of it, a tent was prepared. The first section in which were, he mentions three things here, the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, he says, was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having a golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, so forth. Well, let's look at these. The lampstand uh, is on the south side of the tabernacle. And by the way, if you've got like the ESV study Bible, NIV study Bible, pretty much any study Bible will probably have some sort of diagram of the tabernacle and the location of these items in it. Uh, the lampstand provided light, uh, which was not only helpful literally, but was uh, important symbolically. It was a light fed by pure olive oil. It was always lit, always burning, uh, providing light literally, but again also symbolic of the meaning of the place. Uh, the table and the showbread he mentions. Uh, the table, the bread of the presence, also sometimes referred to as the showbread. Uh, each Sabbath, loaves were placed, 12 loaves placed on the table, replaced by fresh loaves, um, signifying that this was the meeting place with God, feeding of the soul. This actually comes into play historically uh, long after Exodus. Remember David and his men, uh, when Saul was king, go... Uh, into the to the place of Ahimelech the priest, and they're hungry, and he provides them with bread, 
that actually only the priests were supposed to eat, but in their need, uh, Ahimelech allows them to, to have this bread off the table of the presence uh, in order to, to feed. You know, that comes into play later. Uh, refer, the Lord refers to that, how David and his men ate this bread. Strictly speaking, they weren't to eat, but it was an act of mercy. It was an act of provision for them. Well, that was this bread that would be on the table of presence there in the holy place. Now, verse 3, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense. Uh, incense would be burned morning and evening, uh, symbolic of the prayers of the people of God arising up to the Lord. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold. <clears throat> now, we're familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, uh, especially if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know all about the Ark. Well, I, you, well, some of that's accurate. The design of it was uh, maybe fairly accurate. Some of the other stuff was not so much. But uh, the ark, of course, was uh, built, some symbolized the presence of the Lord. And it was in the Holy, the holy of Holies, or the most holy place. The Hebrewism, Holy of Holies, is that redundancy indicating, the, as we as often rendered modern versions, the most holy place. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant covered with gold, and he mentions three things that would be within it. The golden urn holding the manna. You recall, we did study that in Exodus, uh, the manna, and they preserved some of the manna that uh, didn't go bad and was preserved uh, as a symbol of God's faithfulness to them. Uh, Aaron's staff that uh, budded, indicating uh, Aaron's place. Uh, the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, also placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, these things all were important. They indicated God's faithfulness, the priesthood, uh, the covenant, the law, all there in the Ark of the Covenant. And he goes on in verse 5, above it with a cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. What is the mercy seat? Well, the cherubim were designed there on the, uh, on the top, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And that essentially was the mercy seat, the place of mercy because that was uh, between the cherubim was symbolic of the presence of the Lord. Exodus 25:22, the Lord says, "There I will meet with you." And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So there, within the most holy place, is the ark of the covenant. And there on the top of the lid, between the angels, so to speak, was the dwelling place of God, symbolized there with his people. And so there was this old sanctuary, this, this place that the design of it was intentional. It was instructive uh, how things would play out. But the very arrangement of it, the, these articles of furniture in it were important. Well, that was the old sanctuary under the old covenant. It was also the old service that took place with it. We see that in verses 6 through 7. He says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. That was ongoing in the holy place. However, into the second, that is the most holy place, only once a year. Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, there was a whole system, elaborate system set up for people to bring sacrifices and offerings to atone for sin. But it's also significant that as the high priest goes before the Lord and in the system of sacrifices, there was one for basically unknown sins. 
And that's you and I understand that. If we go to the Lord and we're confessing our sins, we may have things that are very specific that we know to confess. That's the Lord's forgiveness for. But you and I know full well, too, that there are sins that we commit against the Lord that, A, we've committed unknowingly, or B, we may have forgotten. And it's interesting in Israel, they had provision for these unintentional sins, unknown sins, sins I've forgotten, sins I never knew I did, whatever it was. Uh, and that in itself is instructive. They, we ought, yeah, the Lord knows our sins, even when we don't. But asking him to forgive even those sins that we're unaware of, that we don't know about. Well, that was part of it. And uh, Leviticus 16, by the way, goes into considerable detail on this whole procedure of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, into the holy, most holy place, shedding of blood offered for himself, as he himself is a sinner, and for the unintentional sins of the people. So the old sanctuary, you have the, the old service, the, the priesthood taking place there. And then the significance, the old significance, what did that all mean? Did that atone for sins? Did that take care of that separation that sin creates between the Lord and between his people? Well, 8 through 10 spell this out. This is, this is what it means. Verse 8, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Uh, he's saying basically that that first section, you could take it symbolically, represents the present age, uh, our separation from God. Uh, so it indicates that, that that barrier. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink, various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So in essence, what he's saying is these things were provisional, these things were symbolic. They were not unimportant. God gave these things in great detail. They were not to be neglected. They were not uh, just, uh, just mediocre, half-hearted measures. They were, they were God-given, God-ordained, very important, but also instructional. At the same time, as he says, they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They just can't. They, they don't accomplish what later would be accomplished. Uh, the, you don't have the same access to God we later would have in Christ. It was an imperfect, incomplete cleansing. It was a temporary cleansing. Symbolic. And that's that's why it was old. That was why it was the old covenant. Why it was provisional. So that's the characteristics of the old covenant. You have the old sanctuary. You have the old service that took place in that sanctuary, and you have the meaning of, of that old system. Important, yes, but also provisional, temporary, incomplete. Well, then that gives them the opportunity to point out, again, what we have in Jesus in uh, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Now, we looked at the sanctuary, the service, and the significance of it. Now, under the new covenant, you can do the same thing. He basically describes the same thing, a new sanctuary, a new service or priesthood, and a new significance, a new meaning under the new covenant. New sanctuary, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. So, 
Whereas the high priest would go into this most holy place on earth, Jesus would go into the reality of which that was a shadow, of which that was a symbol. And namely, he would go into the very presence of God himself. He wouldn't just enter into this man-made tent. He would enter into the presence of God in heaven itself, which is what that represented here on earth. Through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands. That is not of his creation. In otherworldly, this is the presence of God. He entered once for all into the holy places. Now, how does he do that? Well, he does it through a new service or new priesthood. The word for worship and service was, was the same uh, in, in Greek. It can mean either one, to serve, service, or worship. Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. A couple of things to notice. He wasn't sacrificed. The high priest was not sacrificing a goat or a bull. The blood was his. Now, he didn't have that under the old system where the high priest would go up and sacrifice himself. Uh, he shouldn't do that. He couldn't do that. It would be crazy. But in Jesus' case, he was both priest and offering. He was both high priest and sacrificial lamb all in one. He offers up himself, as we saw this morning. He willingly lays down his life. He has authority to lay down his life. The high priest did not in the Old Testament, Old Covenant. Jesus had authority to lay down his life, authority to take it up again. But we notice the service. It's his blood. And also, the second thing to notice in that service is it provides a permanent, an actual permanent atonement, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, that that one uh, expression, securing an eternal redemption, an eternal redemption, speaks to our eternal life. That when Christ died, his blood, for those for whom he died, secures their forgiveness the, their, their right standing with God and therefore their security for eternity. It is an eternal redemption. So we see the new sanctuary. Jesus doesn't just enter into a man-made tabernacle, which, by the way, some have speculated <clears throat> what, what the precision of that tabernacle represents. There's theological significance in it. There's a symmetry and a certain design to it. Uh, that's very particular as God spells it out and make everything exactly according to what I've told you. That does seem to reflect something about, if not a literal tabernacle in heaven, something about the nature of God and his precision and his exactness and his symmetry and his beauty, uh, as well as in his separation from sinners, that, that blood is required to atone and, and remove that separation and create uh, a bridge between the two. Uh, but Jesus enters into a perfect tent, greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands. That is not of this creation. And then that service, the blood was his, and it actually accomplishes redemption. But then finally, the new significance of this, what does it all mean? Well, again, he spells this out in verses 13 and 14, just as he spelled out the significance of the old covenant, a temporary, symbolic, provisional redemption. Well, here's what it means in the new significance, verses 13 and 14. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, he seems to be indicating in an outward sense there, and it's sprinkled on the body, it's an outward sign. 
How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So in other words, he's just making a, a, a how much more uh, argument, a common argument. We find that in scriptures a lot. If this is true, if the old covenant with its old uh, worship facility and its old service and its old significance did what it was supposed to do, and it did, how much more does Christ in this new covenant going into the true tabernacle, the presence of God, through the true service of offering him up, up, up his eternally redeeming blood, accomplish what it is supposed to do. How much more will it do that? And purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We encountered that expression, dead works, back in chapter 6, verse 1, if that sounds familiar, where he exhorts his readers uh, not to lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works. A couple of ways to understand that, those things that lead to death. Uh, would probably be the most obvious way to understand it, or sinful acts, or even um, dead works in a sense of trying to do good works in our flesh and our fallenness, like Isaiah says in such a familiar way, or like filthy rags. Uh, but the point is now we're, we're turning from those things. We're cleansed from those things. And in the context, it does seem it could be either one, our self-righteous, self-promoting actions or our vile sins. Purify our conscience from those things to serve the living God, actually to serve God, to, to please him, to worship him, to be his people. Purify our conscience. Again, go back to verse 9. Sacrifice is offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Come back down to verse 14. They will purify our conscience from dead works. The blood of Christ does what it is intended to do, which certainly is objectively to redeem us, but it's also to give us a clean, pure conscience before God. Paul makes a statement, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. But the fact is, he would do things that would defile his conscience. It would make him guilty and feel guilty before people, before God. You and I do too. But the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience. And that's extremely important. That's why Isaac Watts, talking about this passage in his hymn, says, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace. Or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name, richer blood than they. See, few burdens weigh heavier on us than a defiled, aching conscience. To know that we have done something that is terribly wrong. Terribly sinful. Terribly defiling. And that guilt affects us. It's like it affected Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, what do they do? They hide from God. They run from God. Now, certainly non-Christians do things like that. Their conscience may burn. A Christian may do something like that. That his conscience just burns. It can affect you physically. That kind of guilt weighing down on you. Remember Psalm 32. He says, when I kept silent, in other words, held in this unconfessed sin, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. 
What do you do with a conscience that, as he says, is like your bones wasting away? What do you do with that? How do you handle that? Some people sear their conscience by either trying to explain away the guilt of sin or just sin and sin until they've grown numb to it. They've become acclimated to it. Some people deal with it that way. Some just despair, even to the point of ending their own lives. But you see, this passage explains how we find relief from a guilty conscience. The feelings of guilt, absolutely, but also that objective guilt before God. That we have this Savior. Christ has accomplished not a symbol, but the reality of redemption. Your sins really are paid for. God no longer holds anything against you. Like Pilgrim, or Christian rather, in Pilgrim's Progress, book, John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, early on in the book, has that, that pack, that load on his back. It weighs him down. And he goes to the cross, and there before the cross, that, that load on his back just rolls off. It falls off. He's free of it. It's gone. And that's what this passage is talking about. That's why what we have now is superior. Because Christ did not merely symbolically remove sin. He actually paid for it. He died for it. He suffered your judgment day for you. Yes, we may do things that are wrong. Yes, we need to go to the Lord and confess that and ask forgiveness for it. Maybe to somebody else and ask forgiveness from them. But the good news is, once you have asked God's forgiveness, once you have received his pardon, our consciences can be free, can be clear, can be clean. I love how F.F. Bruce, in his biographical study of the Apostle Paul, uh, subtitled the book. The title of the book was uh, Paul the name of the subject of the biography, Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free. Now, I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, even if the King James Bible says he did. I don't think it was Paul. I think it's sufficiently different. But the writer of the Hebrews is certainly talking about the same thing. That is, we meditate on these truths, and certainly what the Lord taught through the Old Covenant, but what was actually accomplished through the New Covenant. We find that this is a message that sets our hearts free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus has paid it all for us. Thank you, Lord, that our hearts are set free from the guilt and the weight and the burden of sin. Lord, things we can't undo, but things, Lord, in the case of sin that Jesus has died for. And we thank you for that. We give praise to you for that. And Father, we pray that more and more we would live in holiness and obedience, that we, like the Apostle would strive to keep our conscience clear before God and man. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.